Last week we started talking about Benaya. So before we start recording, Gloria, before you start recording, something in my notes that I really wanted to share with you, and that is simply this. It's not that God isn't doing anything, but most of the time we just don't see it because we're so busy looking at other stuff, like what's going on in life, our for no more, the daily grind, that we often miss God's working in our lives. So don't get caught up where you can't see the forest for the trees. God is working. Amen? God is doing in the pit on a snowy day works of providence and sovereignty in our lives at all times. We may not refer to them as miracles. We may not refer to them as supernatural. But it is still God's divine intervention in our lives on daily basis for little things such as Sister K. Meek years ago losing a button in the parking lot. God doesn't miss anything. And everything that's important to us, oftentimes God has already planned and orchestrated that. If it's important to us, it's important to God. How God deals with it is his prerogative. I love what the three Hebrew boys said in Daniel when they were uh, being confronted with the idea of being thrown into a furnace that was going to be heated seven times hotter. And they gave this amazing answer in Daniel chapter 3 to King Nebuchadnezzar. And that when he asked, are you guys sure you don't want to bow when you hear the music? You don't want to bow to the image? And I love their answer. They said, King, not only do we not want to bow, we're not even careful in how we answer you. In other words, we're not conferring. We're not having a coalition. We're not having a caucus. We're not having a meeting. We're not taking a vote, right? <laughs> they said, we're not even careful. We're not even deliberating on how we're going to answer to you. You can heat that thing up 50 times hotter. Our answer will remain the same. We're not bowing to your image, to your idol. We serve the living God, and he's the only one that our knees will bow to. I love their answer, but that, that would be great. That, it would be great if that was the end of the answer, right? That wasn't even the end of the answer. That wasn't even where they stopped. He said, oh, and by the way, by the way, King, just in case you're wondering, if we are thrown into the furnace and become crispy, crispy critters and we're incinerated to ash, we still ain't bowing. God's going to deliver us from the fire or God's going to deliver us through the fire. Be that as it may, nevertheless, God's going to deliver us. And what a saying. I love that. I love that. It's, it's essentially what Jonathan said to his armor bearer over in First Chronicles when, when Jonathan's armor bearer was saying, like, should we try to attack the battalion of the Philistines? And Jonathan made this profound statement that sometimes gets lost. Actually, I think I put it in my notes because I wanted to make sure I quote it properly for you. He told his armor bearer, he said, listen, whether with many or with few, whether with many or with few, God can give us victory. God doesn't need a, he doesn't need a lot. He doesn't need an army. He doesn't need a majority. He doesn't need the president. Amen. God can do what he needs to do with little or with much. He can take down Goliath with a cannon or a bazooka or a pebble with the right slingshot properly placed. God can do it. Amen. 
People always, I know, you know, I've said this before, but I think it's worth bearing. Because people always say that to David and Goliath, they always use that particular analogy as a means of saying, when you're up against overwhelming odds, it's a David and Goliath scenario. The little guy that has no chance is David, and the guy with all the power and the might is Goliath. We've misinterpreted that. It was, it was an unfair fight, but it was unfair to Goliath. <laughs> David was never the underdog in this fight. David was always the presumed winner. He won before he got started. Saul tried to put an armor on him. He said, this is too big. Paul, Saul tried to give him a sword and a shield. He said, this is too heavy. Saul tried to equip him with an armament. He said, this doesn't work right. He said, whatever God's going to do, he's going to do it with or without much or many few or many, God will prevail. The fight was fixed. The fight was fixed. Poor, poor, poor Goliath, poor dude, never had a chance. He never had a chance. It wasn't fair. Justin, so I have a chart up there. Are you able to put it up there for me, please? that um, I want to show you. I didn't put this in my notes. Do you? Hopefully everybody got the notes that I handed out. I'm going to send this out this week, maybe even today, because you're not going to be able to see most of this. But let me just explain what it is. I just took a look at Benaiah's life. I took a look at his life, and I said, um, I said, this is just so amazing what God did. So I kind of highlighted uh, four or five points in his life that I thought would be helpful to us as God builds us to what he wants us to become. And if you look at it, he was equipped with all of this warriorship. Rod knows this because Rod has talked about this before in his sermons about David's 30 mighty men. David had these mighty men that were in the cave of Abdullah with him. They were with him on the run. They were with him in part of his, his, his running from uh, fleeing, being a fugitive from Saul, King Saul. And these men rose to the occasion and became great. Some of them were part of David's army. Some of them were part of his elite squadron, like a sort of a SEAL team of, uh, of 30 guys. But then he had these three guys that were just amazing. And as great as Benaiah was, he wasn't part of that three, that three most elite soldiers, David's top guys. But what I wanted to point out, because I know you can't see that, here's what I wanted to point out. What makes Benaiah great is that he was a warrior. He was tough. Most men aren't going to chase down a lion in a pit on a snowy day uh, with a club, right? But when God gives us a challenge, he always builds us and equips us to be ready to be victorious. Amen? I'm almost done, but I want to make this, this, these, these last couple of points. Here's something I think you should realize. Back in the book of Job, when when that Satan came in among the sons of men and said to God, why are you protecting Job? He's only doing great things because you've built a hedge around him. You take the hedge away, he'll curse you to your face. Remember that? Okay, if you don't remember it, then when you get home, read Job chapter 1. Because if you don't have the perspective in the background of Job chapter 1, you'll really never clearly understand Job uh, chapter 42 at the end of the book. And you'll never know why Job went through what he went through. But what is so encouraging to me about what Job went through is that God saw and God knew, God knows, Jehoiada, Kevin told us, Jehoiada, God knows 
but also God builds. So he built Job so that by the time this particular threat, by the time the devil threw down the gauntlet and said, I bet you I'll take him out. I bet you he'll curse you. I bet you he'll deny you. I bet you he'll turn his back. I bet you he'll blame you. By the time that happened, God had already built Job to such a strength that he was ready. So God knew the deck was stacked in his favor. Just like God knew that David would slay Goliath, God knew that Job would be victorious. God knows us, and he knows everything that we're going to deal with, everything that we're going to encounter, every problem, every challenge, every pitfall, every snare. God knows it, and he builds us so that when we confront it, we are ready to be victorious. God's not in the business of losing. God's not in the business of defeat. There's two things God can't do. He cannot lie, and he cannot lose. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I don't care how bad things look. I don't care how bad things seem. I don't care how down in the dumps we get. God doesn't lie. His promises, you can take them to the bank. They're the truth. Heaven and earth will pass away before anything of God's word fails. And God doesn't lose. He triumphs. He is victorious. He is the winner. Amen. Amen. So in conclusion, I thought about this. And the reason I built this little chart, which I'll send to you guys because you can't see it. The reason I built it is because, is because I thought, well, Pastor Will, you're teaching about a guy who was a declared warrior. I mean, Beniah was one of David's top men. This guy had killed Egyptians that were seven and a half feet tall. He had killed lion-like men before. He killed one guy by beating him up and taking his spear from him, which was the diameter of a telephone pole, a, a weaver's beam, it says. He took it from him and killed him with his own spear. So this is a tough guy. What about normal, average not so remarkable people. And I thought about this dude named, you guys probably never looked him up or may have read him in passing. This cat by the name of Ehud. It's spelled E-H-U-D. You'll find his, his account, you'll find it over in First Chronicles. Um, you'll find Ehud's account over in First Chronicles. I think it's chapter... Chapter 11, yeah, I think I put it, put it in chapter 11 uh, as to this, just his background and, and kind of like the story behind this guy. Uh, it's not, a, well, actually, that's Benaiah. Uh, Ehud's, Ehud's background is in the book of Judges, chapter 3, because he was a judge. He was the second judge of Israel. So if you're going through the Bible from Old Testament to New, you get to the book of Joshua, who succeeded Moses as the leader of Israel. By the time you get to Judges, there's no more single leaders. You start to get these warlords, these mafia kings. Everything became like uh, a cartel. All of these cats were pretty much bad. They went from bad to worse to horrible. Starting with Othenio, which was kind of like a good guy. Then Ehud, the guy we're talking about right now, was a pretty good guy. 
But the, probably the last good guy was Gideon, and he wasn't even that good. After Gideon defeated the Midianites, Gideon started setting up idols and got into idolatry and child sacrifice. He was, they became horrible guys. The judges were horrible, and the kings kind of became worse. But Israel's history kind of really took a slide after Joshua. And so there's one bright spot, this guy named Ehud. And he, God used him to take out a bad king of the Moabites. You can read the whole account in Judges chapter 3, but I, I won't go through it because of time. We have the Lord's table. But let me give you the highlights. The highlights is that this guy was horrible. He oppressed Israel for 18 years, and God just used him to punish Israel. Israel was going through this cycle that I talked to you guys about before. If you look at this history of Israel, here's what would happen. God would bless them. They would sin, usually with idolatry, intermarriage, other, other things that got them into practices that were un, un, unhealthy and unholy. God would use another kingdom to beat them down, spank them. They would get spanked, which is where they were in this particular account in Judges 3, the Moabites. They were imprisoned in slavery for 18 years. God brought a deliverer in the case of Ehud, chapter 3 of Judges. They repented. God gave them victory. They enjoyed a time of peace. And then they started the cycle all over again. And that just goes all the way throughout the book, all the way throughout their history, really, throughout the Old Testament. That was the cycle they went in. Kind of like some of us, we go into that cycle. We're on the mountaintop. God gives us victory. We start doing well. We get slack. We stop coming to church. We stop praying. We stop reading our Bible. We stop fasting. We stop worshiping. We stop giving. We stop tithing. And then the, what the Lord brings about persecution. Bad things start happening to our life. We get into trouble spiritually. We get into a place of, 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 of crises. And if we're smart, we cry out to the Lord. And the Lord in his mercy and grace, because Lamentations 3 says his faithfulness is new every morning. His mercy is new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is compassionate. He's forgiving. He's tolerant. He delivers us, restores us. We enjoy a time of refreshing. And then, boom, we get complacent spiritually and we go right back into that vicious cycle. I mean, it's, it's documented throughout the Old Testament. I bet you if we took a little graph of our life and sort of set up a little matrix, we could probably arrive at the same kind of conclusion. Look at what happens. Sometimes we just, we fall away because of complacency, because of really good, good times, and we, we just sort of lose it. We don't pray as much. We, we think that this is the result of our doing. Not God's mercy. We think somehow we brought about this good, you know, status in our lives. So this guy, the Lord brought up this deliverer named Ehud. God used him to assassinate. I won't go into the graphic details because some of you haven't eaten yet. So Judges 3, something for you to read at home because this assassination is pretty gory. But nevertheless, this guy is taken out and God brings back peace. But here's what I want to tell you about Ehud that I think is even cooler than the fact that God gave deliverance to Israel as I close. Ehud was, as far as I can tell, one of the few left-handed guys in the Bible. How many in the building are left-handed? How many online are left-handed? Okay, all right. So left-handed people, praise God for you. You're unique. 
the Major League Baseball loves left-handed pitchers. They can't find enough. If you, had a, if you have a son that can throw a fastball at 95 miles an hour and he's a lefty, work with him. Get him a coach. He can make you a lot of money maybe one day. <laughs> but left-handers were really rare, really, really rare. Matter of fact, Ehud was from the tribe of Benjamin, and one of the cool things about Benjamin is that the tribe of Benjamin were known as warriors. Who came from Benjamin? Well, from Benjamin came Saul. From Benjamin came King Saul. Benjamin was known for tough, feisty warriors. Matter of fact, the word in Hebrew means son of my right hand, power, strong, strength. Well, one of the things that they did in the, tri in the tribe of Benjamin, they taught their warriors to be ambidextrous, using both hands equally strong. That's, a, that's, you know, that's almost as bad as the word Sister Mary Louise used on us this morning, Cap Capricorn. Well, she used some ridiculous word uh, that only she No, I'm just kidding. It was a great word. She, she probably said all of us, probably other than men, would know what that means. But she broke it down. It means horn of plenty. Gloria explained it to us. But I cracked on Sister Mary for using a, a, a word that, uh, that we would have to use our dictionaries to understand. But this word is, just means that we're strong in both hands. Well, the tribe of Benjamin, those guys were strong in both hands. They were taught to fight left-handed and right-handed. Here's the thing, though. If you look at the original language for Ehud, the Bible says that his left, his right hand, the hand allegedly of strength, was not only was he not right-handed, but his right hand was dysfunctional. It suggests that he might have even had a handicap in his right hand where it wasn't usable at all. So the fact that he was able to be chosen to carry out an assassination plot to overthrow a kingdom one-handed, you know, <laughs> you talk about a guy with a disability, with a handicap, is not typically the guy you want to send to declare an act of war right? You usually want to send your toughest guy, your most resourceful guy. Well, Ehud was resourceful, but not in the traditional way. This was not a technically a warrior. From all I can understand in his background, he was just a regular lay person that was chosen to do this because he had a plan that God obviously had given him that they would have searched him in a different way, but because he was left-handed and his strong hand made him the southpaw, he was able to, as a result, bypass the normal security measures, get access to the king. God gave him a plan that allowed him to be along with the king. He assassinated the king, was able to get out unscathed, and God gave Israel victory for the longest period of time since Moses, and that was 80 years of peace. They didn't get that under Gideon. They didn't get that under Samson. They didn't get that under Queen Deborah. Only under Ehud, someone's name that we have difficulty pronouncing and who is very unknown as a popular Bible character, brought about the most extended time of peace than any other leader of Israel beside the patriarchs. Who says God can't do it? Who says God need a superhero to get his work done? Who says God need a Marvel Comics person to get his work done? Who says God needs Batman? Who says God needs Thor? No, only God, only thing God needs is an availability of a person's heart. He's going to do the work anyway. Yes, yes, yes. Mm. So in my chart, I said, Benaiah, 
his worst enemy. His worst enemy was the lion. And with Ehud, who was a warrior, his worst enemy was King Moab, the king of Moab. But God gave them victory because God used his offense to give them victory. I said with Benaiah, he was under the worst conditions, snow. And Ehud, he was under the worst conditions, giving a tribute to the king. I'm closing with this. And with Benaiah, they were in the worst locations, fighting a lion in a closed pit with boundaries. Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. With Ehud, he was in the worst locations in the palace where all of the security for the king of Moab was right there surrounding him and watching him and searching him and patting him down. But God allowed him to get through unscathed. I thought about, in that particular case, Job's resolve. I thought about when you look at the snow that he had to deal with, Benaiah had to deal with, and the fact that Ehud had to deal with being in a situation where he was in the palace. God told Elijah, I'm sorry, Elijah, um, yeah, Elijah in 2 Kings 6 to tell your servant to look out and you'll see that this, the army of Syria is surrounded by chariots of fire, that God is always surrounding us and protecting us. One other thing, I thought that this guy, Benaiah, jumped in a snowy pit with a club, and this Ehud went to kill a king with a dagger, something that was 18 inches long, two, two blades. He took down a kingdom for 80 years with something that was six 16 to 18 inches long. Who says God needs a lot? God needs a willing heart. All of us, we're normal people, everyday people. We're not theologians or evangelists or authors or world-renowned people. We're everyday people. God uses everyday, ordinary people in extraordinary ways because he only needs a willing vessel. That's it. It's his strength, it's his might, it's his intellect, it's his skill, it's his design, it's his way, it's his will. He's the omniscient one. He's the omnipotent one. He's the omnipresent one. We don't need to do anything but let him have his way through us. Do you all hear me on this July 4th weekend? If you want true independence, the independence that the Lord gives is permanent. You don't have to celebrate it once a year. You can celebrate it every day. God gives us true independence. He says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, true liberty, true independence. Not something that we have to keep fighting for. Not something that we have to keep fighting politicians for and voting for and financing. God gives us true independence, lasting liberty that gives us eternal life. And finally, I, I put in my notes that this guy was facing uh, Benaiah was facing the lion with the worst possible strategy, that is, fighting a lion alone. Usually people go on hunting expeditions when they're fighting uh, wild animals or trying to uh, kill them. And I thought this person, Ehud, used the worst strategy of being a layman, but God took it. And, uh, and by the way, that passage, I was, uh, Justin, can you put on the screen 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 6, and that will be our last verse. 1 Samuel 14, 6 is when Jan Don Jonathan made this amazing statement to his armor bearer, and he let him know that God does things his way. 
and he doesn't need the conventional warfare methods and strategies that we use, but God can do things his way, and I love it. And it says here, and Jonathan said to the young man to bear his armor, he said, come and let us go over into the garrison of these uncircumcised, that's the uncircumcised Philistines. It may be that the Lord will work, by the way, when you see the Lord there with all caps, I don't know if you guys recognize this. That's, a, that's if you saw it in, a, in the KJV or in any of the conservative translations, when you see Lord there in all caps, the Hebrew word is Adonai. And it, it, means, it means God. It means Yahweh. It's the unspoken description, this tetragrammaton that the Jews would use because they did not want to pronounce the word of the, the name of God. So they would use these vowels, I'm sorry, these consonants, a word without, when we spell Yahweh, we spell it Y-E-H-W-E-H, -E but the Jews would spell it Y-H-W-H or Y-H-V-H, which was all consonants because they felt the name of God should be not on anyone's lips and that it should be unpronounceable. So they would call him by this, this contraction of a word, Yahweh or Adonai, and when it's rendered in English, it's rendered all caps as Lord because this is really a reference to his title, not to his name. His name was when God was asked by Moses, what sh who should I say sent them? Over in the Genesis, he says, tell them I am that I am sent them. I don't need to give you a specific name. I am. I have always been. You notice he didn't say I was, I have been, I will be, I'm going to be. He said, no, I am. And when Jesus said the same thing to the Jews over in the New Testament and John, they picked up stones to stone him because they knew exactly what he was saying. He was telling them about Abraham. He said, wait a minute, you guys are all hot and heavy about Abraham. Sorry, Rosie, no disrespect. He said about Abraham, he said, he said, he said, look, before Abraham was, he didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He didn't say before Abraham was, I had been. He said, before Abraham was, I am, suggesting I am just as current today. I am just as contemporaneous today. I am just as much in existence today. I am just as much relevant today. I am just as much God today as I was when Abraham was here and before Abraham was here. I am. That means I have no history. I have no future, no concern. I am always there. I'm always relevant. I'm always in the moment. I am always first person present. I am. You don't have to look for me behind you. You don't have to look for me ahead of you. You don't have to look for me over you. You don't have to look for me under me because I'm always there. I'm everywhere. Psalms 139, I'm everywhere. There's no way that we have to, no place we can go to get away from the Lord. So he says, the Lord will work for us. And I love that. He said, God will work for, works for us. Not you, not your strength, not your ingenuity, not your power, not your might. It's not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, said the Lord, the book of Zechariah says. So it's always God doing it. He says, the Lord will work for us for as there is no restraint I'm sorry, Rosie. Once again, I'm not picking on Rosie, but the King James doesn't really do that justice. I prefer the New American Standard where it says, there is nothing, there is no, there is no, actually, I guess it's the English Standard Version, but the word restraint, the word restraint is not my favorite word because 
that there's a, there's, a, there's a better translation. I don't remember which one it was. But it says, the NLT, he can win a battle. That's cool. He can win a battle. That's more explainable, understandable. God can win whether he has few or many. That's really the moral of this story. God can win with whatever you give him. Two fish and five loaves can feed 5,000 men, not including women and children. What can God do with what we bring to him? I told the Sunday school class, we were talking about the Holy Spirit. I said, if there was more emphasis on the fruit of the Spirit than the fights and wars we have over the gifts of the Spirit, the church would be much more powerful. We would be so much more viable as a body. All this infighting and arguing and debating and conflict. What we, if we focus on what the Spirit does, the fruit, the power of the Holy Ghost in us, through us, that's where the victory is. That's how we prevail. Not with arguing and debating and semantics. The Monday morning moment is simply God knows us and God builds us. I'll repeat it. The Monday morning moment is God knows us, God builds us. Whatever God brings you to, he will bring you through. Whatever God puts in front of you, it's because he knew you had been built to handle it. God does not set us up to fail. Everybody get that? God does not set us up to fail. God does not walk us into the fire to see us squirm and fizzle and burn out. God just doesn't do that. He's not morbid like that. He's not sadistic like that. That's the kind of stuff you all would do. No, not you guys. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff we humans would do. We treat each other wrong. We play games. We mess with people. We walk people into trick bags, right? Not you all. Not you all online. Well, that's with the exception. Of, no, just kidding. Not you all. We, we, we people do that. God doesn't do that. God doesn't play those ridiculous, childish games. Paul said, when I became a man in 1 Corinthians 12, I put away childish things. I quit messing around. I quit doing that. I, I grew up. When you know better, you do better. You walk in the maturity that God has brought you to. When you've been saved a certain amount of time, you shouldn't be making the same, same mistakes that you made as a babe in Christ. When you get to the milk, the meat of the word, you shouldn't be stumbling the way you were when you were on milk. Amen? Lord, we just thank you for your word this morning. We ask you to let it sink into our hearts. As we prepare for your table, may we forgive each other of our faults and grievances. May we confess our sins to you, Lord, that you might forgive us so that we might accept your table with holy hands and a holy heart. Please, Lord, forgive us. Give us the ability, Lord, to receive your table worthily. And may we honor you in all that we do and say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Will the elders come at this time?